This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. features of many people who'd lived in the Austro-Hungarian world and the Czech, Czechoslovak world he grew up. Um, he had uh, a German governess, so culturally uh, a world language mattered enormously, but nonetheless he went to a Czech school, uh, spoke Czech, uh, the family was moving towards a Czech world, but politically um, very loyal to Masaryk just as previous members of his family had been very loyal uh, to Austro-Hungary. Uh, so, you know, three particular points uh, for which he had to balance. Um, that was the one thing that lies behind this lecture, which comes from working on his biography. The second thing was uh, going through the papers that he left behind. Um, in the early 1950s, uh, he would sit um, uh, sort of repetitively trying to work out his position on everything. And amongst those you know, huge amounts of notes that he left behind, tight notes, going through the same thought again and again, trying to polish it, uh, were many comments about what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to try and get into a society, how he felt about it, comments about uh, Sartre, who at the time said, uh, you know, uh, anti-Semitism says you're Jewish, you should adopt a Jewish identity. So you know, philosophical comments along those lines saying, what if I don't want to adopt that particular identity? Uh, but deep thoughts about that. Uh, he didn't write much about that background in public, even though he'd thought about it, until the, la the latter part of his life, when uh, he was, I think, trying to work out uh, where he'd come from, what his own thought represented. Um, and the first occasion when this happened uh, gets me going on my topic. Uh, he reviewed uh, a book about Hannah Arendt, um, 
looking at the situation of Jews at the end of the 19th century and saying a world which starts to emphasize roots, a culture of your own, an authentic world that you can go back to, placed uh, people of Jewish backgrounds in a difficult position because they had no roots of their own, no world, no territorial world of their own to go back to. Um, so he said, you, know, uh, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's Gemeinschaft, but you do. Um, and he said, there are two logical possibilities in this situation. One of them is to assimilate, to get in at all costs. Um, and the alternative is to get your own state. Um, sometimes in private, he would say, the third option is to be murdered. Um, but he had those two particular things, assimilate um, or Zionism. Well, the purpose of my talk today is to, is to double the number. I think there are four particular uh, options that I'd like to describe. Um, he knew one of these ones very clearly anyway. But I want to double the number. Uh, and once having done so, I'd like to look back at Gellner's theory of nationalism um, to see what looking at it tells us about his particular theory. There are a couple of warning comments. Um, there's a sense in which people with Jewish backgrounds, mm, often not ones, the background they wanted to have themselves, backgrounds imposed upon them as much as anything else, um, uh, all had experience of nationalism, but only some of them actually fully theorized it. Um, so there's a, a sliding scale between the experience of nationalism and fully theorizing it. Gellner and Cohn, uh, Popper for that matter, some of the people I'll talk about, uh, had the experience but actually theorized it, uh, other people not so much. Um, another warning comment would be that there's great complexity uh, in this world. Um, and it's a world uh, which is circumscribed. I'm talking about particularly the people in two generations who came to uh, mostly Britain, certainly Europe, not people who went to the United States. So there are limits in the world that I'm trying to describe. So let, let me begin with uh, Gellner's two positions, uh, assimilation um, and Zionism. Uh, assimilation uh, becomes possible uh, at the time of the French Revolution, which allows full citizenship rights to French Jews. Um, makes an enormous difference. Once in, uh, there's no longer a universal Jewish community. Uh, somebody like Raymond Aron would say very clearly, I'm a Frenchman with Jewish background. So national loyalty to the states which let you in, the process of emancipation is different in different parts of Europe, but great loyalty, tremendous hope that you can get in, um, once you're in, that enormous contribution that people with Jewish backgrounds made to European civilization in Germany and France uh, is you know, absolutely uh, obvious and, and clear. And that's what uh, 19th century uh, intellectual history is largely about. So tremendous hope if you can get in. Um, nationalism famously changes its character during the course of the 19th century. It moves politically from the left, more towards the right, um, more concern with roots, less concern uh, with emancipation, less enlightenment, more uh, closer to uh, nature, authenticity, 
uh, the world of roots. Um, but Jewish patriotism doesn't change at all. If the first period had been a period of hope, you can get in and contribute and make your place. At the end of the 19th century, with the rise of a great deal of anti-Semitism, uh, there's a different sort of feeling. We'll show them. We will be more patriotic. We'll absolutely be certain we can get in. Um, hence the extraordinarily high rates of Jewish uh, volunteering for war in all the European countries um, at the end of the 19th century during the First World War. Tremendous loyalty to the states to which they belonged. Um, there, are, there are oddities to this world. Um, sometimes the loyalty, the patriotism to particular states seems bizarre. Uh, Max Naumann in 1935, uh, cited in the Jewish Chronicle, said, um, you have to be loyal to Germany. Hitler is renewing Germany. We must at all costs support Hitler. Um, Edwin Montague, the only Jew in the cabinet at the time of the Balfour Declaration, was the only person in the cabinet who opposed it. Um, so there are a lot of complexities to that. And I'm going to give one final example, which, which uh, uh, summarizes uh, most clearly of all. That's Emil Durkheim, uh, Emil David Durkheim, um, who uh, experienced tremendous difficulties in his life. Uh, he took a very strong stance uh, in Bordeaux at the time of the Dreyfus affair. Uh, endless demonstrations against him. Uh, he had a tremendously difficult time. Uh, he said after that that he depended upon his close family for some warmth and solidarity. He would return for Jewish high holidays to Epinal, even though it was a tremendously long journey. Uh, he uh, advised his nephew Marcel Mos, uh, to, if he was going to marry, he never did, to marry somebody who was Jewish, not somebody who would cause the family difficulty. So those things were very much in his mind. Nonetheless, in 1916, the city of Paris comes to Durkheim and says, uh, what should we do with a large number of Jews who are coming from Russia uh, and want to get into France? And Durkheim's answer was classical French Republican answer. Let them all in. Uh, they won't be Jewish for long. They'll become French. We can assimilate them. He had no uh, trouble in saying that at all, very clear. The evidence he gave for it was high rates of Jewish uh, participation in the war, the patriotism they actually showed. So no doubt about that, but it wasn't easy for him. Uh, uh, when this report uh, came out, uh, he was attacked. Uh, you know, standard line, uh, he comes from a foreign line. He's not French. You can't trust him. And a rather bizarre thing, if we do this, it will actually help the Germans. Um, so he had a great deal of uh, difficulty at the end of his life. And it's worth noticing, this is 1916, just after his much-loved son, André, has been killed in the trenches. Uh, nonetheless, uh, that's assimilation. Never easy, but he was completely committed to it. So that's option one. Zionism. Uh, Zionism is complicated, as many of these positions are. Um, Gellner himself said, if you can't get in, get your own state. Um, that's, in some ways, quite a good description of Hetzel, um, who was so at ease with meeting the elite of European society, including the Kaiser, 
um, but nonetheless couldn't really get into it. We must have our own state. But there are very different positions. In, in Gellner's Prague, um, the Bar Kokhba group uh, has a rather different attitude towards it. Uh, Jews in Prague particularly, this is Kafka's world, um, lost, uh, can't really be part of the German community, even though they're writing like Kafka in high, beautiful high German, because that community has become ethnicized and very anti-Semitic. Uh, they can't really fit in the Czech community. Uh, they don't fit anywhere. They're deterritorialized and rather lost. Um, at this time, Martin Buber comes to Prague and gives two famous lectures uh, and has an enormous impact upon that society. Um, what comes to the fore is the desire for authenticity. Um, so they produce a journal and a particular volume which says we're Jewish by blood in an essentialist way, uh, completely so. Uh, we're Oriental, we're not Western. Famous article by Hans Kohn along those lines. Um, and they say, really, we should initially reclaim our territory, not so much because it's our territory, but if we go there, we will truly regain our Oriental uh, senses. Um, so it, it's not just the fear, it's also this desire so present at the end of the 19th century. This is a world of Heidegger and Husserl, Lebensphilosophy, to, to try and gain some sense of authenticity as, as to exactly who you are. In this particular group, um, there was a lot of change. Um, the trouble of authenticity um, it's, it's not a very uh, sort of consistent philosophy. Um, you know, on Monday, you might say, um, you know, I love you absolutely sincerely and I can't breathe if I'm not in your presence. But sometimes on Wednesday, people say, I don't love you anymore, I can't uh, stand you, and I'm feeling very authentically involved in somebody else. So this particular group changed its mind. Some went to Israel, some said we don't have to go to Israel. Uh, we can, in, in fact, uh, be authentic here in a different way. Uh, so it was a very fluid group, but the concern with authenticity was extremely important. And one person who uh, really took this most seriously in the end was not from Prague, but from Odessa, Jabotinsky, uh, who made a final and ultimate choice that nations are biological entities uh, and they must be preserved. Any attempt to try and uh, weaken them uh, will lead to uh, you know, a loss of identity. It's an absolute, firm, lifelong, permanent commitment on his case. So those are two of the options. The third option that concerns me is, is, a, is a different one. It's one that Gellner, it's one that Gellner himself knew. Um, both the nation-state uh, assimilate into the nation-state or get your own nation-state. They're about nation-states. Uh, we forget now that until really very late, the most important uh, form of power in European history were empires. Uh, really up until 1945. Of course, there were small nation-states born in 1919, but what's noticeable after the First World War is the expansion of the British and French empires. They seemed the, 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 you know, the political force of the future. Um, so it's this third world, the world of empires, either mostly remembered, um, that concerns me now. Gellner noticed it with, uh, when writing about Wittgenstein in the book that he was 
working on at the end of his life. Um, he famously uh, irritated Wittgensteinians by saying there are two sides to Wittgenstein, the early and the late Wittgenstein. The late Wittgenstein is a, in a very particular, highly abstract way, uh, somebody who is wanting to assimilate in a sort of populist form, enter philosophical justification of this is to do with the nature of language, but very much assimilate. But Biela spent a lot of time on the early Wittgenstein. The Wittgenstein who has an abstract theory of language, a sort of mirror theory of language, uh, atomistic, uh, rational, uh, no cultural element to it at all. Um, that is the world of cosmopolitanism. I'm going to describe several options inside people who are indebted to the world of the world of empires. Uh, I can say in advance that these people dislike nationalism, virtually all of them, um, but it's a world which remembers empires very much. Cosmopolitanism. If we want to understand it best, I think it's not Wittgenstein who's going to help us, it's Karl Popper. Uh, Gellner's colleague here for so many years. Uh, Popper famously writes the open society and its enemies. Who are the enemies? Well, uh, Popper is part of the assimilated Jewish background inside Vienna, constantly seeing the arrival of Jews from the pale, traditional, that's the closed society. Popper is very much in favor of the open society. Viennese Jews who were established and Jews in other places who had thought they were in did not like to be reminded of the dilemma of belonging. Um, so it's a closed and open society. What's the open society for popular? It's non-national. Uh, Vienna protects Jews. Any move towards smaller states inside Austro-Hungary will be bad of Jews. They won't be allowed in. The empire or something like it is necessary to protect Jews. Um, he longed, you can see in the footnotes of the Open Society, for some Danubian federation uh, uh, to, to have replaced uh, Austro-Hungary. Uh, he disliked Zionism very much. Uh, occasionally there are even anti-Semitic comments to, uh, that he has there. But it's uh, reason reason, reason at all times, rather you know, not cultural at all, um, and it led to, on one occasion, the, produ the production of an absolutely marvelous article about Popper by Malachi Hakon, uh, a historian um, in uh, Duke University, uh, Israeli in background, who, who wrote uh, you know, really the most uh, stunning and painful article I've uh, ever read, really, in which he described Popper's life and said he's completely homeless. Really, he's saying he made the wrong choice. He should have taken the choice of Zionism, but he didn't. Hakowen. I'll tell you afterwards. Um, uh, uh, and says that in, in, in the end, he's you know, buried alone, homeless. Um, it's it's better. Cosmopolitanism is, is the first uh, option. There, uh, Popper has a theory about nationalism. It's a sort of psychological theory, but nationalism is a, is a reversion to the womb. It's a sort of tribal reversion to the simple life, unable to deal with openness. So there was a theory of nationalism there, highly implausible one, 
I, I think. Um, he has, of course, as a digression, his colleague Eli Kadori disliked empires, uh, liked empires just as much, disliked uh, nationalism in the same way, but in Kadori's case, no concern of reason, much more concerned with assimilating to British, to British world. If that's number one uh, option inside this uh, world which likes empires. Uh, a second possibility is the desire to disassimilate. Um, Rabbi Samuel Bloch and many others say we're far too, we've given up too much. Uh, we should make Vienna uh, more tolerant to Jews. We should have a Jewish identity, we should have Jewish institutions, we should be able to have our own culture preserved here without fear. So disassimilation is a second very powerful option, um, but Vienna can change, become more liberal, and protect us. The third option is um, a little bit like that. It's the socialists inside Austro-Hungary. This is the world of uh, Renner, Karl Renner, and Otto Bauer. Um, you say, Instead of having territorial nationalism, we can have a personality principle. We can describe our nationality on our identity cards or whatever uh, and be respected for it, but it's a non-national respect for nationalities. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, to see that there's a difference between the two of them. Uh, Renner is Christian in background, and he has no trouble in allowing personality principle to apply to Jews and to many different groups, but Jews amongst, amongst them. Bauer, who has a Jewish background, uh, is very different. Uh, we know him, we know his sister. His sister was analyzed by Freud in the Dora case. Um, all four of his grandparents had spoken Yiddish. They had moved into Vienna. Uh, Bauer is not prepared to allow the nationality principle to apply to Jews. Uh, he's, it's too close to him. He's too insecure with his background. He wants to get into Vienna so much. Uh, so Czechs can have a nationality principle, but not Jews. They'll never let us in. So best to just keep it hidden uh, as much as we can. The fourth position is not people who are trying to save Austro-Hungary, but people who are trying to produce a socialist world. Um, there are different versions in this. Um, one of them is George Lukács, uh, just before the First World War, uh, reading Kierkegaard, uh, his mistress kills himself. He makes a leap of faith, a Kierkegaardian leap of faith towards socialism, um, towards a form of authenticity. Um, rather different amongst the Bolsheviks, uh, Lily Riga, uh, has written an absolutely wonderful book in which he points out that really a very large cohort of the, Jewish Bolsheviks, uh, of the Bolsheviks had Jewish backgrounds. Um, they were highly educated, couldn't quite assimilate, and in various ways saw nationalism. Some of them had a trajectory where they tried nationalist movements to begin with, realized very quickly they couldn't get in, and in effect became left-wing empire savers or left-wing empire creators. Um, so that's, that's another, uh, another one. But there are other people who think of these larger worlds. Um, one of them is Karl Polanyi, um, born Jewish in Budapest, um, converts to Christianity. His mother had been the daughter of a Lithuanian rabbi. 
um, produces one of the great theories of nationalism, I think, in the Great Transformation, saying capitalism. Um, it's an interpretation of the 20th century. Capitalism is changing all the time. It's changing, 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 changing. There's no security for someone. In these circumstances, sooner or later, society will want to protect itself, by which he really means a nation state will want to protect itself by getting out of the international market, providing ways in which there is stability. When you, you know, read that book, you think, uh, maybe this is somebody who's um, sort of in favor of the nation state. Not at all. Uh, what matters for Polanyi is uh, continuing dislike of nationalism. By the mid-1930s, he's longing for a world of what he called tamed empires. Uh, he says, it's okay for the Hungarians to have a nationality. The Czechs should really stop it and assimilate into somewhere else. It's rather like Mazzini at the beginning of the 19th century. Some small nations should go. And he constantly says, small nations are a nuisance. It would be much better if we had tamed large empires, one in Europe, Britain, America, uh, semi-protected, so that there's not this sort of globalization pressure on all of them. Um, but uh, you know, tamed empires rather than nationalism. And the last person uh, who belongs to this world is somebody who comes from Prague, great theorist of nationalism, Karl Deutsch, um, Jewish background as well, though much more of a German community, very, very uh, wonderful fight in the 1930s uh, against what the German Czechs, German-speaking Czechs were encouraged to do. Um, I'm not thinking of his book, Nationalism and Social Communication, but uh, in the 50s, he wrote a very uh, important book, which has you know, great resonance today as a co-edited book with everybody else who was writing about Austro-Hungary, in which he said, what we need in the modern world is security communities. He has a theory about security communities. What it really is, it's the recreation of Austro-Hungary. There must be an agreement between several countries, uh, he's thinking of NATO and some other possibilities, uh, which control nationalism. There must be something larger. It's rather like those tamed empires. Um, so those are three positions. And before I come to the fourth, uh, in, in which Gellner fits himself, I'd like to just pause for a second uh, with two reflections. Um, the first reflection is to uh, remember a play of Sartre uh, that Gellner himself used uh, to very good effect. Um, translated as no exit. Um, uh, for my purposes, you might call it permanent dilemmas. Um, if you think of those three options, uh, assimilation, a wider world of empires, um, or Zionism, um, Sartre's play comes into four. The play is one in which um, three people sitting around, uh, one person tries to say, this is where I stand. Uh, I have a strong position in life. But the other two can always dig and find some ways to point out that they're not really settled and normally they're telling a lie, they're hiding something. So it's no exit, it's, uh, it's really perpetual torture between these three people uh, in a single play. It's a marvelous play. Well, if you think of my, the three positions I've, I've identified, um, they're, none of them work. They all provide terrible dilemmas. None of them 
can be really solid. If you think of assimilation, the objections the other two, in a loose way, have against it are these. The first one is, they'll never let you in. They'll always know. They'll always be able to recognize that you're different. There's a marvelous essay by Isaiah Berlin about this. You know, even if you become an expert on local cultures, that shows you're not a native. Um, they'll never let you in. And in that same essay, Berlin goes on to say something else. Uh, if you really try and try and try and try, it can lead to a degree of self-hatred because you have to hide so much that you're sort of emasculating yourself. Uh, in a way, that's true of Bauer. Um, you know, Renner is perfectly happy to allow the Jews to have a nationality inside that personality principle treatment of nationalism. Not Bauer. He wants it to be forgotten. Uh, and Gellner himself, when writing about Wittgenstein, also brings out this very heavy charge uh, about self-hatred and saying that it applies to Wittgenstein. So there's a lot of difficulty. You know, can, you know, can you get in? The charge of self-hatred is sometimes people in the Jewish community saying, we're not going to let you out. You'll be disloyal if you leave. But lots of dilemmas in that particular position. It's not easy. What about the wider world of people who like uh, or are nostalgic sometimes for empires who want to create a wider world? Well, there, there are a lot of dilemmas too. Um, the empires didn't last. It's the obvious one. Uh, they failed. Um, Hakon, who wrote these this very tough attack on Popper early on has changed his mind. He's a wonderful interpreter of this world. And now has come to say Austria was the place where Jews were protected most of all. He's become a great Austrian admirer. But he overdoes it. Austria wasn't that nice. Uh, it was actually pretty tough in some ways. Uh, so he overdoes exactly how calm and pleasant it was. Um, it wasn't really like that uh, so much. Um, then there is the charge against Popper that uh, this is a world which is sort of empty. Uh, you know, at the end of the 19th century, people are thinking of labels to hold empires together. Ottomanism. Austrianism. They never worked. Um, you know, the great novel about Austro-Hungary, the man without qualities, is about the attempt to create a memorial, some event, which will make people think of Austro-Hungary and love it as much as they do their ethnicities. Um, it didn't happen. Um, it is a slightly emptier world. The world of you know, abstract reason of the Vienna Circle is, is not one which warms your blood like wine, so to speak. So there's a lot of problems in that. And we also need to remember the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks thought that they were going to create uh, a larger world, a left-wing world, have nationalities. They were very influenced by Bauer. They have nationalities, but they'd fade away. It didn't work like that. The people who suffered most were actually the people with Jewish backgrounds. Uh, it didn't save them at all. They made a terrible mistake. Uh, they didn't really recognize what ethnicity was. 
Um, the third option, Zionism, uh, there are tremendous dilemmas of it too. Um, insofar as it's essentialist, um, it's very small. It's, you know, uh, Jabotinsky came from Odessa, uh, a wide world with lots of options. There's, there's a form of self-denial saying that it's just blood, just one thing. Um, he's denying all the experiences of choice and diversity there was in the Jewish population of that world to narrow things down. Um, so it's a much smaller world and there can be difficulties uh, with that too. So that's, that's one reflection. Um, second reflection is a rather different one and it's, it's important to say it because it then um, prevents you criticizing me, you probably read it and do it. Um, which is to say that to say there are these three different options in one sense is very misleading because people are complicated. They drift between positions and hold different positions at the same time. You know, Kafka in, in Prague could never make up his mind where he was. You know, German culture, sometimes chasing, chasing Czech girls, uh, very interested in Yiddish theater at the end of his life, considering going to Palestine. Uh, sort of drifting between different positions. Uh, there are a couple of comments we might have in mind. I'll go on about this with some examples for a moment. Um, there's a marvelous essay by Scott Fitzgerald where he says, uh, a sign of a really first-class mind is the ability to have different positions in your mind at the same time and still function. Uh, to be able to contain uh, ambivalences of one sort or another. Um, I, I was once with um, the American sociologist of religion, Bob Wathnow, who posed a dilemma. He said, what is, who is the, I'm not going to give you the answer, but here was his dilemma. Um, who should you trust more? Uh, somebody in America, it's a very American thing, who is um, Protestant, converts to Catholicism, then becomes Buddhist, but, you know, six different religions serially, or somebody who produces some terrible mishmash of all of them, but all their own, you know, a Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, all, all at the same time. Um, uh, but people have complex positions. It's certainly obviously the case that people held two positions at the same time on many occasions. Um, Louis Namia, uh, very loyal to Britain, but certainly a Zionist at the same time. Um, Arthur Ruttman um, in Palestine in 1914 as a Zionist nevertheless volunteered to fight for Germany in the war uh, because he was a German patriot at the same time. So many people held different positions. Um, Hans Kohn might be somebody who comes to mind. He was a member of the Bar Kokhba group in Prague. Uh, edited uh, the uh, book they produced in 1913, completely essentialist, very much like Gellner's father, fought in the war, uh, was captured, spent a long time in prison camp, uh, had great sympathy for uh, Bolshevik ideas at the time, um, deeply disturbed when the Allies start to allow nation states to emerge, the emergence of Poland as a nation state, uh, worries him uh, very much because it's the national principle. Um, he goes back to Prague, but then goes to Palestine and fights for a long time for a binational solution. It says nationalism 
is a spiritual doctrine. Uh, states get in the way of it if they try and establish a one-to-one nation-state principle. It's very disillusioned by Palestine, leaves in 1934, uh, ends up in the United States. The theorist, one of the first two great theorists of nationalism, uh, with his famous distinction between civic and ethnic forms of nationalism. Becomes a Cold War warrior and produces a distinction which by and large has done a great deal of harm. Um, so is, is Cohn somebody who's changing position? Actually he's not. He's somebody who's absolutely consistent the whole way through. He hates nation states. This theorist of nationalism is somebody who dislikes them. Um, he says in the end of the 1930s, I am Austrian and I always will be Austrian. Um, so in fact there's consistency in his position. But some other people are not consistent. You can think of Arthur Kersler, uh, who interests me, I don't understand yet. You know, uh, Jewish from Budapest, um, communist by 1925, anti-communist, and at the end of his life produces a very strange book, The 13th Tribe, in which he says, um, Jews of Central Europe are not Jewish at all, they never were, they're Khazars. He sort of denies the existence of Jews of Central Europe. A, a very strange uh, book, apparently without any truth to it at all. But a uh, strange and complicated um, position. So those are two reflections. Uh, let me turn towards the last set of things that I'm going to talk about. Um, it's a fourth position. It's one with uh, time in mind. Um, Popper and that generation could think about uh, recreating empires or have nostalgia for them. But Gellner's generation is rather different because the empires have gone. And the question then really becomes, in a world in which the nation-state principle has conquered, how can we live? Um, what can we do with nationalism? Uh, what's the attitude we must adopt towards it? Um, and here there, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, two people. First of all, Isaiah Berlin. Uh, Isaiah Berlin is part of this world, a little bit older than Gellner, uh, didn't have the experience of fighting in war. Um, but he takes a very honorable position uh, against Kersler. Kersler writes an article in the Jewish Chronicle just after the Second World War in which he says, the state of Israel has been founded. Now you have a choice. If you wish to be Jewish, go to Israel. Otherwise, assimilate and sort of never mention your past again. And Berlin, uh, rather honorably, writes back and starts an argument and says, I don't want that. I don't want to assimilate in those full terms. Uh, I want to, on the contrary, have a dual identity. I want to be allowed to be here in the diaspora, but I still wish to be able to maintain a Jewish identity. I want to, comp I want to have a complicated identity. Uh, to integrate uh, into a society rather than assimilate to it. Um, Berlin's position has uh, difficulties attached to it, um, for sure. Um, he has great difficulties with uh, pluralism, um, uh, which is so important for him. Is pluralism relativism? Uh, you know, there are lots of different goods. How can you judge? if there are different standards for different things. He has great difficulties with that. Um, the greater difficulty probably is to do with this uh, Jewish background. 
There's a considerable difference, and, and again, a marvelous article by Hakon about this, where he compares him to Popper. Uh, for Berlin, the Jewish commitment is sort of essentialist, not open to discussion. He's in favor of pluralism, but not completely, because he says different nations must represent different things. Less pluralism in Israel, because it needs to protect that particular community. So pluralism, he never really manages to work out how these two things are going to fit together. Um, uh, Popper is very uncomfortable with this and says, you know, the point about diversity is that a challenge. You have to think. You can't take, take things completely for granted. The myth of a framework, the language he uses against um, uh, um, uh, Thomas Kuhn. Uh, applies. Uh, so Berlin's position is highly honorable, but uh, rather complicated. What about Gellner? Let, let me finish uh, two sets of thoughts about Gellner himself. How did Gellner deal with this world? He didn't have a constellation of that religious background. He didn't deny it, uh, but he didn't have a constellation of it. Um, what's characteristic about his attitude towards nationalism to begin with? Well, Wittgenstein he dislikes too populist and, you know, rejecting science, but science is uh, so very abstract. So Gellner says you have to have both. You have to find a way to somehow be in the middle. The phrase he uses for it is you have to respect science, of course, ironic cultural nationalism. You need some language, but you mustn't take it too seriously. Um, that's, that's the position and enormously important for him is the success of the economy. Uh, he's somebody who really comes to age at a period of national reconstruction. Successful economy will be able to paper over the cracks. It'll diminish anti-Semitism. He irritated Anthony Smith enormously uh, when Smith was his graduate student here by saying anti-Semitism in the advanced world is under control. Uh, it's not so bad now something that Anthony himself never felt. Um, but very much of that was dependent upon uh, prosperity. In his last years, Gellner changed his mind a lot. I think he was tortured in his last years, years I did know him a bit, um, because the breakup of the Soviet Union, breakup of Yugoslavia, made him feel that nationalism could gain its teeth, the teeth of the interwar period all over again, uh, and he was genuinely disturbed. Nothing complacent about his views in those years at all. And at this moment, he sort of changed his views. Um, you know, the, the classic Gellner is really um, one, one nation, one state, one state, one nation. Let's hope it's rich and affluent because it will, you know, things will be under control. At the end of his life, he discovers Malinowski. Uh, and from Malinowski, he gets the idea of a really a liberal empire, uh, an empire where a strong state can keep the nations under control, great cultural uniformity, uh, uh, diversity, everybody has their opera house, so to speak, um, but political control so none of them can behave badly. He gets that from Malinowski, but actually it's in the logic of the situation because he's come to exactly the same position that Hans Kohn had um, after 1919 
is for position of Polanyi with tamed empires as well. Um, and it's not that sophisticated, I think. It's still imperial. It's not about democratic nation states. It's somehow about a liberal empire which can control what's happening. Um, but that's where he is, very honorably, very deeply worried by nationalism. Um, what about moving towards his more formal theory? That's really his attitude towards nationalism. But the more, what about the more formal theory? I don't think that there is a single Gelnerian theory of nationalism. I think he might have liked to say there was. But uh, uh, David Layton, the American theorist of nationalism, once rather wittily remarked, um, Gilner wrote his autobiography and called it sociology. Um, his book on nationalism is really living inside uh, uh, the experience of nationalism. There are different insights in there, uh, some of them more powerful than others, and I think it's worth for a moment distinguishing them. But as it's inside this world, uh, I don't think you could, it's ever going to be possible to refute Gellner's theory of nationalism. A, a, a very brilliant review of the book came out, uh, came out right at the start, uh, 33 years ago, which said, uh, it's a fantastic book, um, but actually there aren't a series of clear propositions you can actually use to refute. Um, uh, so, but what does the book say? It says, um, I think there are three particular things that it emphasizes, uh, the second of which has great complexities to it. One of them is its modernism. Um, uh, I have to be a little careful here. Um, Anthony, Anthony Smith is not here. I'm sure somebody will go and tell him what I'm about to say. Um, uh, so I think this is a world where there's a draw. Uh, Gellner himself, uh, was a modernist, uh, was quite often worried about Shakespeare. Uh, you know, some sense of nationalism in Richard II, and, and he knew this very well. And Antony himself, particularly in his first book, was well aware that uh, conscription warfare, education system, some things which are to do with the modern world, matter a great deal in the history of nationalism. So I think we should just leave this, so to speak, to them. Uh, you know, the glass is half full or half empty, according to your position. But Gellner certainly absolutely tells us something, and we can never do without that set of insights. Second element of his theory is the one that people know best. It's to saying that nationalism has something to do with industrial society, that part of modernity. Um, I think it is true, number one, that if you have small, culturally homogeneous nation states, it makes it easier to live in industrial society. Doesn't mean to say that you have to create them if you haven't got them, but if you happen to be Denmark, which, I'm sorry if there's a Dane in the audience, well, you know, the Danes, they haven't won a war since about 1610. They, they, they lose wars all the time, so it, it's a great miracle. They're left with Danes, 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 Danes. There's a high level of consensus agreement. It's easy to respond flexibly in that world. So there's something to the idea that if you have cultural homogeneity, it can help you. Not to say that you should try and create it. Industrial society theory is that it is true that Gellner sometimes sounds as if industrial society, mm, the needs of industrial society miraculously create nationalism. 
that, that doesn't work and it's been much criticised and perfectly fair. However, a lot of countries which wish to industrialise, the desire and need to industrialise inside a competitive international state world at the end of the 19th century, um, the leaders of the empires looked around and thought that the most powerful states were the ones which were culturally homogeneous and therefore sought to try and create uh, nation states, empires trying to turn themselves into nation states. That part of Gellner's theory seems to me to be very true. The other part, the third part, or the last part, is um, the fact that uh, it's his great parable of Ruritania and Megalomania, the Czech peasants moving into Prague in huge numbers. Uh, what do they see or what happens when their educational bubbles and majorities move in elsewhere? And they see the top jobs held by a distinct ethnic community. They want to get in. Um, uh, it applies against the Tamils in Sri Lanka. Top jobs are held by one particular group. When was an education explosion? Numerous classes against the Tamils and hence a reaction. At the moment when there's an educational bubble, newly educated majority moves into the state, is a very dangerous moment. Uh, tons of tension. That's what happened in, uh, in Montreal where I lived, uh, where I live, when the French community in the 1960s entered in as a majority, wanting to change, wanting to take the top jobs away from the Anglophone minority. There's a lot of truth to Gilner in that as well, I think. The third element of Gellner's theories is, is what he was moving towards, I think, late in his life. Uh, I really already hinted at it, where he says, where does nationalism come from? It comes, first of all, from the great empires wanting to homogenize their territory so they can be powerful. First of all, it, this irritates, say, the German-speaking aristocracy in the Czech lands. But then, when mm, Russia... Tsarist Empire starts saying, for example, to the Finns, more language training in Russian, not Finnish. That puts the backs up, resentment because of what states, uh, empires trying to turn themselves into nation states creates enormous resentment. A theory not dissimilar to what Isaiah Berlin said about nationalism. Um, there is hope in that. Gellner's hope for containing nationalism very often wealth. But there's also hope in the fact that that period at the end of the 19th century when empires are trying to change themselves, turning themselves into, that's a period of high geopolitical competition. When geopolitics is not so present, uh, rivalry is less intense, then states don't need to be quite so unitary. They can allow for diversity, agreements with federalism, consociationalism become possible. The world can be slightly softer. So was, there was a particular the virulence of nationalism was particularly something in the end of the 19th century. Um, I have two final thoughts. Um, first one is uh, to, to note that recently Benedict Anderson, in a recently translated book that he'd written for Japanese speakers, 
identified this world, uh, particularly with LSC in mind. So many theorists of nationalism had this background. Um, and he's critical, implicitly. Uh, he says, just as they tried to keep Kakadia, Kaiser, King of Austria, just as much they love that. Uh, Eric Hobsbawm, in particular, he's trying to keep Ukania, the UK, together. Um, and he says at the end of this passage, well, I like Tom Nen, because uh, Tom Nen doesn't want to keep this ramshackle affair together any longer. Um, and Andersons, of course, both of them have an Irish background. Um, yes and no. Um, it's very noticeable, some of you lose in Quebec, that in Scotland, nationalism has excellent relationships with ethnic communities. It's thought hard to do so. Actually, uh, English-speaking helps, I think, but it's tried very hard to integrate them. And the ethnic communities, ethnic background communities, vote for the SNP. Nothing particular about that behavior. But, um, so Anderson's right. But also, no. Um, I, my life in Quebec has recently seen the attempt by uh, an independentist party to yet again uh, come along and say there's a distinction between the real Quebecois and the rest. We had a rather devious move on that part, which was to say we need a charter of values. Charter of values is one which doesn't allow religion. The part of this is that if you had passed such a law, it would have been rejected by the Supreme Court of Canada. If rejected by the Supreme Court of Canada, then the Independentist Party would say, look, we're not masters in our own house. The rest of Canada doesn't like us. Maybe the vote would go from 30 to 50. But it was a very nasty policy, and it's probably lost them the ethnic vote in Quebec for at least a generation. But it was dark side. That most certainly can be present too. Um, final thought is really an Austro-Hungarian thought. Um, nationalism is not one thing. If I just go back to Denmark, you know, when the Danes were voting on the to adopt the law, there were really two sides. There was basically the whole of the political elite, uh, political parties, newspapers, commentators, saying yes. Um, but there was also another community, um, not Copenhagen, more male, sometimes unemployed, uh, which was very much opposed to it. They're both nationalists. They both had views of what was good for the nation. Uh, what you see in the second group is the nationalism of people who feel left out, um, who can't swim inside a larger world a sort of nativist nationalism. Nationalism is, is perhaps the thought is a Freudian thought. Uh, nationalism is like Freud's id. It can move around and sort of stick on to different things, have different characters. It's not the same thing. At the moment, it seems to me, the nationalism is much less of an elite affair, much more of an affair in Europe of people who are left out. Um, and the final moment, two minutes left, nice to be in front of this clock, um, is, is, um, um, is that I was in this room almost exactly a year ago when Asim uh, arranged a debate 
uh, three very distinguished contexts. The debate was, um, is nationalism, is the age of nationalism finished? Uh, uh, I remember Gellner used to love uh, uh, a competition uh, from the world's shortest you know, uh, books, uh, uh, Russia's, Russia's Road to Democracy. Gellner always wanted to put in Czech military victories. Um, and I think a very short book indeed could be written on the end of nationalism. Nationalism is very distinctly there. There are three very distinguished commentators who managed to draw it out for an hour and a half. But what happens in Europe at the moment shows that it's still very distinctly present, but with a slightly different social base. Thank you.